Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Here in Black History Month, one of the new things on TV is a new season of the National Geographic series, Genius. In the past, they've done Albert Einstein, Pablo Picasso, and Aretha Franklin. This season series is called Genius MLK slash X, about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It's also about their wives, Betty Shabazz and Coretta Scott King, and the vital roles they played in the struggle and in their husband's work. This is not a documentary series, though. It's an acted series. Here's a 30-second sample of Aaron Pierre as Malcolm X. Now, I've been to Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, and even for our southern folks here, Edgewood. The same truth exists up and down this so-called land of the free. We're all still negotiating something that should be ours. So what's the solution? Pride and dignity within self. Caring about who we are and when we understand our worth and have pride within it, so too will everyone else. Aaron Pierre as Malcolm X in the National Geographic series Genius, MLK slash X. One of the points of the series is to portray how the public images of the two men are too often reduced to oversimplistic contrasts of King the Unifier and Malcolm the Militant. And so we'll talk now to a special guest who is a consultant to the series and wrote a book that inspired it, a many-time guest on this show, Peniel Joseph, professor of history and public affairs and founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin and author of books including The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century, and the one directly relevant to Martin and Malcolm, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Peniel, always great to have you with us. Welcome back to WNYC. Hey, great to be back, Ryan. First, what's your relationship to the series? Tell us more. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, uh, when we were all just shuddered at reading a lot of books, um, the the producers, um, you know, they they approached uh, me and, you know, they said they were excited about uh, the book and that they were actually going to be doing a series. Um, and I think initially they had thought of just doing MLK and um, the the producers who they were working with at Undisputed Media, um, Reggie Rock, Bythewood, and Gina Prince-Bythewood, they wanted to do both. And they had the source material to do both with the sword and the shield. And from then we were in sort of a writer's room through Zoom. And um, I was able to visit the set and, uh, you know, what I thought, and I think they did a really great job. Um, Very so exciting. Really exciting, yeah. And so, listeners, you're invited in in this segment for some oral history for our latest Black History Month segment. If you were alive and paying attention during the lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, did you tend to line up more with one or the other? And if so, why at the time? 212 WNYC 
888-900-9692. And for anyone, how has your understanding of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King changed over time? Do you see them as less different today than you might have when you first thought about them? Also, you can call in if you've been watching the National Geographic series, Genius MLKX. The first four episodes have been out. I believe the latest two are dropping today. Or anything else you want to say or ask our guest, Peniel Joseph from the University of Texas at Austin and author of the book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. But would love to get some oral history here from people old enough to have been around during their lifetimes and have had impressions of them at that time, and if they have changed for you. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Peniel, you you write about their very different childhoods and the geographical and religious contexts of their youth to help understand why they entered public life with the messages that each of them had. Uh, can you describe a little bit of that? Certainly. They, you know, they, they both have, uh, in their own ways, traumatic childhoods, uh, certainly, um, and very, very, you know, blessed childhoods as well. So Malcolm is born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1925, and his parents are Garveyites, uh, which means they're um, followers of Marcus Garvey, who is this black nationalist, pan-Africanist, uh, interested in, political self-determination, also black people owning their own businesses and defining the reality for themselves. And so his mother uh, is from Grenada, very light-skinned woman who could really pass for white. And his father is from Georgia, very dark-skinned. And they end up having seven children. Uh, His father has three children from a previous marriage. And they are farmers. um, And his mother speaks five languages and teaches the kids French and and how to read and how to write, um, but they're also terrorized by the Klan and different white supremacist groups because they consistently move to predominantly white areas because that's where the better infrastructure, better land is. Um, and eventually, Malcolm's father is going to be killed in 1931, uh, something that he always remembers as a lynching. Other people say he was killed in a streetcar accident, but Malcolm's only six years old, and that's going to really transform the course of his life because by 19, by the time he's 13, his mother's going to be placed in a psychiatric institution in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the family's really going to be broken up. And from there, he's going to go visit his sister, his half-sister, Ella Mae Collins, who really becomes one of the most, uh, two most important women in his life. Um, you know, beside his mother is Ella Mae Collins and his wife, Betty Shabazz. And so that's his childhood. He becomes, by the time he's 14, 15, um, what people would call a juvenile delinquent and, and engaged in uh, fits of criminal activity, both in East Lansing, but also in Boston, Roxbury, where he moves in with his sister and Harlem. And then he's finally arrested and uh, he's arrested numerous times, but he's placed in jail in 1946. And it's in jail that he's going to have that jailhouse conversion to uh, the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad and becoming a Muslim, where King, in contrast, is born about three and a half years after Malcolm in Atlanta, Georgia, 1929. And he's the son of, um, really, his father is a sharecropper. He's really sharecroppers people who becomes a reverend. And his father's from Georgia, just like Malcolm's father was from Georgia, and like Elijah Muhammad was from Georgia. It's a very interesting convergences. But King's mother is part of the um, black elite, and her father, his maternal grandfather, 
with the founder of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is still there in Atlanta today. And uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, the senator, is, is you know at the pulpit of Ebenezer. And so when you think about King, he has a much more gilded childhood, goes to good schools, uh, wins oratorical contests, uh, enters Morehouse at the age of 15. But as the series shows, I mean, he he had you know uh, you know two suicide attempts um, at a very very young age. Um, he experiences racial discrimination. He experiences depression. Um, you know, when he's 10 years old, King dresses up as um, an enslaved boy at the Gone with the Wind premiere in 1939 in wow. Ebenezer Baptist Church. The whole choir is there, uh, really in a minstrel show capacity. Uh, and Malcolm is seeing that same film in Mason, Michigan, and, and feels so humiliated. He writes in his autobiography, he felt like um, crawling under under his seat uh, because he goes with his predominantly white classmates to see Gone with the Wind. So what's so interesting about both of them is that they experience race in different ways and in different localities, but they become people who are very much identified with black people and identified with the poorest of black people. So they become people who are sort of on the side of um, the underdog, on the side of the most marginal uh, and discriminated against black people. In Malcolm's case, it's prisoners and people who are formerly incarcerated. In King's case, it's going to be sharecroppers and people semi-literate, illiterate, who are who are considered less than human in society. Let me let me take uh, an oral history call. Kathleen in Norwalk, Connecticut, who recalls seeing Malcolm X speak in his lifetime. Kathleen, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, Brian. Yes, as I was telling your screener, um, I went to Barnard College, which is uh, obviously it's privileged and and it's girls, and a group of women invited Malcolm to speak at Barnard, and I was thoroughly expecting to have him take us to task for being white and privileged. And I will never forget the grace and the really the, the love and, the, and it was an aura. I will never forget his face his demeanor. He had come back from his Hajj where he found that he had brothers and sisters who were white, black, yellow. His community with them was the religion of Islam. And I felt that Martin was coming the other way from being a mainly spiritual guidance and that sort of thing. But then when he got involved with the garbage workers and the strike in that they were going to hold, he kind of was heading toward the more economic uh, answers. But it's Malcolm that I remember so well. And I think had they lived, of course, that's why they didn't live, things would have been really, really different. And and I just was uh, in awe of the presence of Malcolm X. I, I unfortunately never got you. to see Martin. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Peniel, can you talk about, and, and the caller was starting to, to get at it, um, and, and I think this is important to the TV series and to your book, talk a little bit about how each man moved toward the other. Oh, absolutely. So Malcolm, you know, his big contribution is this idea of, of radical black dignity and that all people had human dignity, but, but black people... Um, were the universal principle in that because he felt that black people 
uh, had dignity, then all people were going to achieve it. And King's notion was of citizenship, radical citizenship, and that citizenship meant beyond voting rights and civil rights, but an end to violence, um, health care, uh, a living wage, all these different things that he's going to um, believe in. And over time, Malcolm, when you see the ballot or the bullet, comes to believe in citizenship. He comes to lead voting rights rallies. Um, and he also becomes this revolutionary pan-Africanist and human rights activist, um, a critique of capitalism, um, an anti-imperialist, so this real revolutionary. Um, and over time, King does too. So what's so interesting is King comes to believe in black dignity. He comes to start saying that black is beautiful. Um, you know, King is never anti-white. Um, so he never used some of the white devil language that Malcolm used when he was part of the Nation of Islam. But King comes to be uh, a huge critic of white supremacy. Um, and so when we see both King and Malcolm by the mid-60s, and they meet at the U.S. Senate building on March 26, 1964, you're seeing sort of this, this overlap of citizenship and dignity. And King wins the Nobel Prize that year, and that's the year that Malcolm spends five months in Africa. And the caller before alluded to the Hodge, and the Hodge is very important because they were both men of faith. And a lot of times because of this country's Islamophobia, we don't give Malcolm the credit as somebody who was a Muslim minister for the last 17 years of his life. And Malcolm doesn't see a, a disconnect between his time in the Nation of Islam and becoming a Sunni Muslim. He sees it as a continuation, an evolution, an expansion of, of his mind. And he always says that he didn't change, but travel broadened his mind. And he takes to Hajj, he takes to Umrah, the mini Hajj in September, the, the first Hajj in April. And he meets extraordinary leaders. He meets leaders of, of, of uh, Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, and Namdi Azikiwe, uh, um, Prince Faisal, Saudi Arabia. He meets up with um, President Nasser of Egypt. So he's a very, very interesting person in that sense that he becomes this unofficial prime minister of, of African America overseas. And he's also arguing and making a point to Muslims and Islamic clerics that they need to be anti-racist and on the side of racial justice if not, the religion that they're articulating is not the religion of justice and truth hmm. and equality that they claim it is. So uh, he's our, really challenging everybody at the end. Yeah. Our time has gone so quickly. We have a minute left. Uh, one more listener comment via text. It's a question, really. Curious how your historian guest justifies the anti-historical use of actors, their faces, their voices, to imitate people of whom we have archival audio and video. This is TV dramatization, not history. And that series on National Geographic is TV dramatization. I don't think they hide that fact. But do you no, want to say yeah. anything to that listener? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's art. I mean, history can be the basis, whether it's about Dr. King or the American Revolution or the Civil Rights Revolution. So this is not a documentary um, and this is reaching so many millions of people. I think it's really important to allow um, actors and the artists that we have to convey uh, these historical figures. Denzel Washington does a brilliant job in 1992 in the Spike Lee film, but this is really updated for the 21st century and, and shows the way in which both of these folks were dual sides of the same revolutionary coin. 
And there we leave it with Peniel Joseph, founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin, and author of The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., inspiration for the new National Geographic Genius Series, MLKX. Peniel, thanks as always. Thank you, Brian.